0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. DJ. How to DJ. How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How to DJ.
1: It's a multifaceted thing, an
0: instinct for what people want to hear. You kind of have to put it out there to get it back. Learn to count to four and have good taste. There you go. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45.
1: I was always really fascinated by it how you continued your music
0: and kept the groove and for this episode one of the best known DJs ever a true superstar DJ I was completely on it from the absolute beginning a pioneer one of the undisputed kings of dance music I've always been competitive in that way I've always wanted to be the best at it and a DJ who had a 15 year residency at space in Ibiza it can never be equaled that ideal of what happened there and what it meant to, to me. me. But what I have to
1: do is do that every, every single, single time, time I go and step in front of the turntables. You have to find these things in the end of the day based on your experiences of being out, actually being out. I'm just a, a, a guy that basically believes and loves and, and have a passion for life, and, life music. and music. There's a million DJs now. Everyone's a DJ. My cat's a DJ. Everyone, anyone's a DJ. You know, they've got a USB stick, get a set of headphones, DJ career. All right. Well, if I helped everyone do that, brilliant. Now it's time for me to to move on.
0: Carl Cox, welcome to How To DJ. Hello, Chris. How you doing, mate? Very well, mate. Thank you. Before heading into the box of questions, Carl, tell me about your life growing up in South London. Were you always into music?
1: Yes, I was always into the idea of the music because my family, mum and dad coming from Barbados, West Indies, they always had parties at home. And these parties at home used to keep me up at night. You know, James Brown downstairs, we'll go, get up off of that thing. You know, I, I could hear it at the beginning to be like, ah, I'm back, <laughs> I'm back. get up off of that thing. I'll be like, will you not keep it down down there? <laughs> like, Jesus Christ. Ain't no choice in the end of the day, but to get into music because they'd be downstairs and my mum and dad's friends are smoking and laughing and, and enjoying the music. And then one day um, I, w- I came down from my bedroom and I'm looking at the banister and I said, oh, you guys suck, I can't get out no sleep. And my dad was like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> Just come downstairs and see what's going on. He goes, I'm going to give you one or two things to do. He goes, first thing, you can go to bed. He goes, or you can come downstairs and put these records on. I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. So I came downstairs. My dad had this mono player stacks with 45s. And he go, right, play these and don't move for hours. (laughs) I should have actually sued him for child labour because it made his life a lot easier. I ended up basically going around to all my mum and dad's friends' houses with the same player playing the music. So I became like a human Spotify. I was eight when I started. Do you remember the very first
0: record you put a needle on?
1: Oh, I mean, it's it's, it's difficult because I do remember all the records, more or less what what I played. I, I think... The first record I think I played was Sitting by the Dock in the Bay by Otis Redding. And it was on Bell Records. What I liked about that record was the whistling. <laughs> so I said, I like that record, Dad, you know, Otis Redding. And as music was going along on Stax Records and Booker T and the MGs and all this sort of stuff, it was all, you know, rhythm and blues. It was all black music, as we know, but it was connected, you know, with my mum and dad's family. And also at the same time, they were into... Calypso music and soca music. So, music from the island. So, I've got all this jump up, jump up, everybody jump up, jump. Anyone's like, woo, like this. So, you know what? I, I think me being a DJ today, there was no choice, but th- this was the path that <laughs> I ended up taking.
0: <laughs> <laughs> After the child neighbor, do you remember the very first time you got paid to be a DJ?
1: Yeah, I got like £10. I got some money that was raised at a school disco. I've got this sound system. It had like a record player and a tuner and uh, a cassette deck. And the speakers probably was about 60 watts a side, 120 watts RMS. And I put it in the school hall. <laughs> blasted the hell out of it, and blew it up, <laughs> and that was it. They said, here's £10 to get it fixed, and we're never gonna book you again. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, it sounded really good in my bedroom, you know. it took it out. It was a place called Carshorton Shorten Hall in South London, and this was like my beginnings of, of my ends in some ways, but on the sound systems. But yeah, £10 is, is the first amount that I got. I did a lot of parties for nothing. Friends, birthday parties at home, house parties for galore. I did all of that. And then a friend of mine said, oh, we wanted to do a wedding for me. And I was like, I don't really do weddings and stuff. But I had this bigger sales system i got in the end. And, and I did the wedding and it went down really well. And I got uh, 20 pounds for that one. So <laughs> things were working out slowly but surely for me when I was 14, 15 years old.
0: And what sort of music were you into by that time?
1: I was into uh, the OJs, I Love Music. I was into uh, David Bowie, Mark Boland, any Tamla Motown music, anything on Atlantic Records. Obviously, James Brown back in the day. All, all of that type of style of music, especially in the 70s, was where I was at. And I really was excited by music. I listened to the radio all the time. I was listening to Radio Caroline, Radio Jackie. I was listening to all the pirate radios back in the day, Radio Luxembourg. Um, and then eventually Capital Radio. all this. I was always listening to music on the radio. I'd get my headphones on and find out through the airwave what was going on. And that's how I used to then learn about the artists of which I was exposed to by my father to be able to start a record collection based on the music moving forward and, and records and the music I was exposed to.
0: Would you say you had ambitions to be the biggest and the best? None
1: whatsoever, because my dad was always like, get a proper job. This is not going to last. You know, I'm a bus driver. My dad was saying, like, you need to get on the buses. And I'm just like, on the buses? <laughs> like, I couldn't see myself doing that. But I was actually a um, tradesman. And uh, I was a scaffolder by trade. Through my life, I did painting and decorating. I was a chippies mate. I was plasterers mate. I did a lot of building work and laboring work just to earn money, just to buy records and to buy a sales system and, and make my disc bigger and better as it was going along for the weekends. So I had aspirations of enjoying my hobby, but always working hard in, in the end of the day because of my hobby. But, you know, at that particular time, the best DJs, you know, that was getting paid and, and, and had the most exposure were radio DJs, you know? So anyone that has got Tony Blackburn or Steve Wright in the afternoon or any of these guys, they're the DJs' DJs. They're the ones that, that were actually making a, a really great living out of it, you know, great media exposure. They were the kings of kings. But when I was going out in the early days to find music that I would like to dance to and go out and enjoy, it was Robbie Vincent, a guy called Chris Hill. uh, Froggy had a sound system. It's called the Funk Mafia. And I used to follow these guys around all around the country and taste the weekend that a great Yarmouth it was one of the most awesome things to go to based on the music they used to play and, and the sound system that probably used to set up. And I got inspired by all of that. Me DJing or buying music, I was always a consummate DJ in my regional area. I was always the go-to guy if you wanted to party, just book, get Carl Cox, he'll do it for you. I mean, I used to take my small sound system that to school. And when we used to have lunch, I used to get that sound system, plug it in get, and play records to people. And then when I went to college, I did exactly the same thing. So my vocation was always being where I am today, but without even thinking about the idea of that, because being a big DJ, the aspirations of that, you needed to be on a big radio network. And I never saw myself as a radio DJ, because I've always been out with the people, with the public, a one-on-one with everybody. Being on the radio, it's you and a microphone, as you know, and that's it you know, and hope that people
0: are listening to you. (laughs) Every day. So how did it escalate then? How did you get to the point where you were recognised as Carl Cox, as as a DJ going out and what turned into a massive, massive superstar name?
1: A lot of it was because I used to run my own parties. My name was always synonymous with new music at that particular time. So if I'm playing funk or soul or R&B, hip hop, you know, I would play it and mix it and and give you the essence of what I believe a DJ should be doing. And that was something of which appealed to a lot of people all of the time. And whether I was doing a house party for 20 people, or I had an ability to, to take it out of a house party and do it in a hall for 200 people. My name was a thing that was basically bringing them in. And the idea of Carl Cox and my name was synonymous with having a good time and the music that I would basically play and make were making people very happy. But then what happened was I knew that the 70s wasn't my time, but I knew that it was going to be late 80s into the 90s where it was going to be my time. And that's why I struck. So I was into hip-hop a lot in the the late 80s going in, and I was always turntable mixing. And I was always really fascinated by it how you continued your music and kept the groove and everything that happened with, with hip-hop music at that particular time. So when that started to happen, I was in, you know, the Beastie Boys, Def Jam, uh, EPMD, you know, Schooly D, all of that. And I used to mix the hip-hop with funk and soul music. So all that groove and energy was was always in there. But at the same time, because of my family, was always into soca and calypso music, that music is jump up, it's four on the floor, and it's like moving. So When it came to house music, soca, house music, 4-4 beat, I was completely on it from the absolute beginning and then followed the path of house and techno music in the end, and that became my vocation. But at the same time, we had this rave scene blurging in. So I'm like, this is great. And I have to say, you know, Paul Oakenfold was one of the first people that was coming from the hip-hop scene, I used to do sound system for Paul, and then outside of the hip-hop scene was the house music scene, ballerics, and arbifa and all of that. I was right at the cusp of all of the beginnings of all of it. It was only a matter of time where I was going to be able to pop out of the realm of, of being underneath it all to be able to see as someone that was, you know, challenging what happens next in music and, and what happens next on dance floors, um, outside of the clubs, and then into warehouses, and then into the rave scene. That's what we know today.
0: Yeah, you played the first night of Danny Rampling's Shoom Night, didn't you, in London in the summer of 87, and were part of the second summer of love, therefore. What, was it a golden time, Carl, as you look back?
1: Oh, it was incredible. I mean, Danny came to me, and, uh, and I used to go and see Danny when he was Danny Rampo playing for Nicky Holloway, and actually Pete Tom back in the day had a place called Swan and Sugarloaf on a Monday night. And Danny was playing in, in, in the secondary room, playing 45 soul records. He wasn't even interested in house music at the time. For him, he wasn't even around. It was just like he saw Paul doing what he's doing. And then basically Danny was like, you know, actually really enjoy house music and, and the development of all of that. So Danny kind of came over and, and kind of got onto that idea of it. And But then he had his own little crew around him, a London crew. And uh, I was playing for the Boiler Ash crew at the time in Kingston on a Tuesday night. And I've gone away and i bought all these like house music records. And, you know, I was still very, very much unknown at the time, but he knew I had a sound system. And then he came down, like what he heard, he said, look, I've got this leisure center in Suburb Street for a Saturday night, late night party. And I'd like you to play and, and do the sound system for me. And I was like, great opportunity. You know, I didn't charge him a lot of money. It was just something that I thought I could do very easily and, and have a really good time by And then uh, I went down to the Ledger Center, and it was literally no bigger than my front room. I mean, if I went down to the Ledger Center now today, I'd be like, okay, so this is the toilets, where's the main room? Because it was big enough to be big enough for what we were doing at the time. But if you look at it now, it would have been so small, we would have never have done that event. But it was of the time. So if you can imagine, all the walls were covered in mirrors because everyone was like pumping up. It's a gym, it's a bloody Ledger Center. So we got all these banners, and we banded it all out all day, glow and stuff, and strobe lights and all sorts of things in there, and a black light and that, and brought it into a, like a small club. I'm not sure how many people it was, it, but I reckon if you got four hundred people in there, that was packed. So they were very, very fussy on who they let in on the door. But I had my sound system; it's pounding in there, and I DJed and played, and it was great. And you know, Danny went on, and he, you know, he did his thing down there, and I played there for two weeks. And then uh, unfortunately, uh, I was asked not to come back again. Uh, my job was a bit too good that I got kicked out. And then I was like, okay, fair enough. And then Shum was like, oh, the place to be is, the, you know, it's a the face of everything. I'm like, hang on, I was there for the first two weeks. What happened? And it was one of those opportunities missed in my sense because I wasn't able to carry on what I created and started for Danny. But outside of it, it was actually a godsend because I was able to go on my own path and end up being where I am today, outside of Disham. So this was something of which um, I was glad to be a part of, of course, and the legacy of all of that, but then moved on because of that.
0: Carl, there was a similar scene going on at the Hacienda in Manchester. Did you play the Hacienda?
1: I had been invited a couple of times to play. Um, it's very rare for Hacienda to book anyone from down south because, you know... As far as the northerners are concerned, they're the ones that started house music and, in, in, and, and Acid House and everything. And, and they needed to have that ideal of what they believe to have been the birthright of house music and techno music in England. But it, to be honest, it was a bit of both going along at the same time. I mean, I was in London on a Monday night with Paul Oakenfold's Spectrum Night, and there was nothing else like that going on anywhere in the country. And then eventually, you know, Hacienda, which was basically a club for pop music, and bands which then turned into a nightclub so graham park was the main dj from there as well as mike pickering and then they were asked to come and play for paul oakenfold and then paul would go and play for hacienda and others so it was kind of like that the north was feeding the south and the south was feeding the north with this music
0: your memories of those days are very vivid, it seems. Carl, how do you think clubbing changed from the 80s into the 90s?
1: I think the starting of the internet, the communication, the way how people are sharing information. I remember whizzing around in the early days with my sound system and the early warehouse parties and all this sort of stuff. We had a pager, and the pager would be the thing that you would connect. To. It's like, right, get all the coal. And i would be like, Z-Z-Z. you know, my pocket would buzz, and I'd be oh, shit, who's that? And I'd get the old pager and be like, ah, oh, right, you need to turn left at the next roundabout. Oh, shit, okay. <laughs> Go to the telephone box. You be like, "Oh shit!" Okay, put a telephone box. Yeah, right. What's going on? What now? We want me to go, you know? And the message would be on a feed. Yes, Carl, you need to go now down down down, down to the next roundabout turn, right? I mean, like, oh, for fuck's sake. It was completely cryptic. And but now, if smartphones that go right, uh, Martin Garrix is playing at the main stage at this time, and the is going to be playing at Never. The platform of everything changed. You know, when we were whizzing around looking for parties, we would see the lasers and uh, from afar and you know we've been driving for hours we've got our map or whatever and the pilot's got to be over there somewhere where now you get a pin drop and you go directly to exactly to where you need to be at the event so i think that our early days in the 90s was magical absolutely magical for we had no idea when we stepped out of the house where we were going at all we just knew hang on it's three o'clock in the morning and there's quite a few more cars on the road than there would normally be at this time of night follow them all of a sudden you just see the night glow of all the lasers and that you're like oh my god and this is to take us far and wide i mean a lot of people are quite lazy these days and they don't want to like a festival around the corner from their house but we would be out for three or four hours you know traveling to find these events and i think the music was a lot more raw the mystery was a mystery until you found out and knew about it and it was your own little thing if you you know had your little dj that you heard you know, at a party somewhere. Then you will find like Norman Jay, be playing some after party somewhere. And then you'll follow him, you know, ding walls and all this sort of stuff. And you go, oh, this is great. And then all of a sudden you find soul to soul and, and all this sort of stuff. And you think, oh, this is brilliant. And this was a mystery, but you would treasure that in the end of the day. And you would really respect the fact that you had to find these things based on your experiences of being out. Where now, you know, someone had a go at me not long ago for playing at Wembley because I went on at 2.15 in the morning. I'm like, 2.15 in the morning. I used to play at space at 3 o'clock in the morning and then not finish until 8 o'clock in the morning. And you're having to go at me for going on at 2.15 in the morning? I took it on the chin. I said, okay, well, I'm sorry about that. Maybe I should have gone on earlier, maybe. I've always been a nightclubber. I've always gone out late. So I think what's happened now is a lot different to when it was then in a the sense of what you're looking for. If you're going out, you're not going out and then going home by 2.30 in the morning because you're already out. So you want to carry on. You know, my night at Wembley didn't finish until actually uh, 4.30 in the morning. I was actually going to finish later. But because I knew that maybe a few people that would like me to go on earlier, I went on an hour earlier. So I was going to go on at 3.15 and I went on at 2.15 and it still had to go at me. So if there's a big difference between what, what it was like then and what it is like now, then the answer to that is...
0: I want to ask you about space um, because it's been a huge part of your life. It lasted for 15 years, your residency there, 2001 to 2016. Was the whole time like an off-the-scale experience? People
1: don't really understand what happened here because... When I was asked to do the residency there, I didn't have the big name. I wasn't like Pete Tong going in or Paul Oakenfold going in. I was, I was Carl Cox, a guy that used to carry record boxes and do sound system for Paul Oakenfold. And I do a few raves around the UK and, and, and some in Europe and I play in Germany. That's it. I didn't have a radio show. I didn't have any of the, the things that you have now in the sense of what's bolted onto you based on your successes. It was all about me and what I could bring to the table for that night. So when we were handed the Tuesday night at space, there was no nighttime ethos at that club. The only time people knew about space is if you went there at seven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and it finished in the early days at five o'clock in the evening of that day. And then it became synonymous of the consummate you know, after hour club, which would then go on through the night on Sunday until Monday. It's incredible because I used to go down there and just absolutely love that because of it. That's what it was all about. And then there was like, a Monday night session, uh, which was a party that used to happen after Manny Mission. And the rest of the time, the club was shut. So when I was asked to handle a Tuesday night, it was either going to sink or swim. And if it does uh, sink, it doesn't matter because we gave it a go. So I really did pick the ball up and run with that uh, Tuesday night ethos because it really was cold cocks on the door at space. It wasn't like cream at space. It wasn't... Paul fold at Space, you know, from Spectrum back in the day and all that sort of stuff with, with his crew. It was like, okay, Carl, well, this is your chance to do something and hope that it all goes well for you. And, you know, the first year was pretty good. Second year was a little bit better. Third year was really kicking in. Now, the thing about the third year was like Pepe had, at the time, was the Sunshine Terrace out open air and the discotheque are inside. And then Pepe decides that, uh, okay, we need to put a roof on the Sunshine Terrace. I said, okay, that's nice. We put a roof on the Sunshine Terrace, make sure that we can still see outside. We like to see the players go across. But it'd be air con, so you know what? Whew, normally it's so hot out there, it's not funny. But every time you was outside on the terrace, you went inside because it was air conditioned to cool off. And then you went to, went to the toilet, came back out, and now I need a beer. And <laughs> but Pepe come back and he basically redesigned the whole Sunshine Terrace to be another club of almost same equal size as the main club inside. So we were reaching the numbers of the two entities at the beginning. I need to put another club which was another two and a half thousand people. I'm like, oh my God, you're asking us to now try and get another two and a half to three thousand people based on what we've already done as a success. So we said to ourselves, okay, we're gonna make this room defined. And what we did is we we had Pendulum in there, Giles Peterson, Goldie, DJ Markey, Norman Cook. It was all to do with uh, non-techno and house music, everything else. So we had a different amount of people come, which then gave the night the scope of which was, I would say, the birthright of what happened at Space in the end. But we were able to bring all of those elements into the club like no other club did. And then we just progressed and developed what we had for all of those years. And it, it still would have been going still today if it wasn't for the fact that it just got basically taken away from Pepe and then turned into what it is now today as High. And with that, I find it very difficult to even step foot in the place or even go near it. It left such a legacy for me, but also it ripped the heart and soul out of me as well, because I don't mind clubs finishing and then moving on. But the way the transfer happened with kind of no idea of what we're going to do next, with the platform that I created like no other. I mean, it's still one of the longest standing residencies that I think any most DJs had. I mean, there's still been clubs that have been around for many years, uh, but not with the same person. And with that, I could basically walk away knowing that I did stand for something all the time the club existed. And, you know, when I played the last record there, it left a massive hole in in my heart. And with a lot of people who also used to go there as well.
0: I've seen the video of that last night and the tears in your eyes and the crowd as well. It was one hell of an emotional night.
1: I I don't know how I got through it, to be honest, because I didn't know how I was going to feel. You know, people go, oh, it's just a nightclub. You know, it's, it's just a party. I mean, a lot of people who were there did get it. A lot of people saw it being streamed. And then my music, which I played over nine to 10 hours, they were watching this computer screen with tears in their eyes. You know what I mean? It was like, you could feel it. You could feel it just oozing out of every kind of computer orifice. It was just, It it can never be equaled that ideal of what happened there in the end of the day and what it meant to me and how I gifted what I did for years and years based on what I believed to be something of which was a great connection between me and the audience on a weekly basis for that amount of time was incredible. You know, it took a lot of time and energy out of my own time to do that, but I knew the importance of why I was doing it. And it wasn't money-driven or fame driven or anything it's just the fact that when i walked away from it that is the reason why i do it and that's the reason why i was so attached to it and got so emotional by it is because it's something in which money can't buy ever is the idea of how it makes you feel
0: okay time for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box here all the questions are on 45 sleeves i'll dip into the box you say when. Okay. Is there a downside to being a DJ?
1: There is a downside to being a DJ. and That's a bloody good question, that, because here I am at 60 years old, and I have no idea what happened to the last 40 years. Uh, it's gone so quickly for me. They like, say, you know, time flies when you're having fun, and it, and it certainly does. I mean, my sister Andrea had a baby 32 years ago uh, called Rihanna, and she's now... Not a child anymore, you know. I remember oh, my sister going, "Oh, I'm pregnant!" And all of a sudden, now, "Hey, Uncle Carl, can I get tickets for my latest party?" You know, when did you grow up? You know, my family and friends—I treasure everyone dearly and love them dearly. But it's been difficult because, you know, when you are so focused on my life as as a whole and dedicated to my life so much that you forget about your family and friends in some ways. The time that you have with them, especially now when we hit the pandemic, that's when you needed them the most, and that's when you knew that time was passing. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good question, that one.
0: Uh, Another one, just say when. Okay, uh, and when? I think I know the answer to this, but uh, I'll ask anyway. What's your best distraction?
1: (laughs) Anything that's bright and shiny and jangly. It's like, ooh, come to me. Most of the time, it's cars (laughs) or motorbike. One of those two things.
0: (laughs) Carl, how did you get into motorsport in the first place? Was that something from when you were a kid?
1: Always, you know, I, I even when I was on push bikes, I always wanted to go faster than anyone else. I've always been competitive in that way. I've always wanted to be the best at it. You know, my motorbike gang started when I was uh, 15 years old in the UK. And my first motorbike at a particular time was a Yamaha FS1E called a Fizzy. And my friends around me all had motorbikes. So we used to go around the local area, just terrorising everybody with our two-stroke engines and and smoke bellowing out of the exhaust and just, you know, going up and down a uh, roadside and... <laughs> uh, yeah, that was uh, great, good times, you know, back in the day.
0: <laughs> do you know even how many cars and bikes you've got? I mean, people do say that, but I do, yeah.
1: I mean, if I had to put a number on anything... I'm no Jay Leno, OK, and, and he has a lot more than I have, and, and a lot of people have a lot more than I have also, but I do have around about 80 motorcycles and I have probably around about 32 cars.
0: That's more than a hobby car. All right, back into the box for another question. Okay, you say when.
1: Okay, and when.
0: What would you like your legacy to be?
1: I think I like my legacy to be that my lifetime, I was able to do something that made people happy, put a smile on their face, and that's sharing the love of my music. I think that's always been the thing that I know that I am most happy with. If I've selected a record and they're smiling and they're enjoying what I've given them. And then that was a legacy. I made millions of people all over the world happy
0: with my music. Do you know, Carl, something that's coming through from what I'm sensing talking to you is that, I don't know if I'm right in saying this or not, but I get the feeling there's like an element of surprise for you, the way that it's all turned out. People go, you know, you're
1: so humble and, you know, you should realize what you've done and it's success and, and all of that. But you know what? If, me and you went out today, you know, we go, look, let's go and get something to eat. I'd be more likely to take you to a fish and chip shop down the road and have a great time. We were on a bench, chewing the fat about life. And I would be so happy about that. That would be the thing that, that I would treasure and, and and feel and understand. And I would enjoy and walk away from it. You know, other people will be like, oh no, 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 we have to go to Nobu and spend a fucking fortune you know, and have this experience. I love boo, by the way. It's just, mm, I love the food, it's exceptional. But that's what I'm like. You know, I'll have a beer with anyone. I'll have a pulse of chips with anyone. I'll sit in a park bench with anyone. That's what people don't understand about me. It's, uh, it's the most simple things in life that make me happy. I'm not searching for anything. I'm not looking for anything. You know, I wasn't even going to make another album. It wasn't even on my agenda. I had stopped making an album for a reason 10 years ago. But because of you know, what happened with the pandemic. I'm sitting around my studio with all this equipment around me and I just thought, you know, why don't I get myself reacquainted with this stuff because I haven't used it for years and years. That something was a bit missing in my life based on what I know I can still do and what I can still develop. So in the sense of, of answering your question, I don't feel like David Beckham. I don't feel like that person. He is a superstar in his own right based on what he did for his country as a footballer and the team. I saw David Beckham a goal in over greece one year one of the most amazing things i've ever seen in my life can you imagine right this goal is going to make or break us going into the european championship or whatever it was at the time we're all in the pub and we need this goal (laughs) we need this goal and then beckham gets the ball and he puts it down all eyes are on this tv screen everybody's watching him and looking at him at the stands they know he has the ability to bend that ball in from a free kick Above all the players and get it in the goal. He's done it a million times, right? And you're sitting there like in the pub and you're like, you don't want to watch, you want to watch, you don't want to watch, you want to watch. And he goes up there, he kicks the ball, he bends it all over everybody, passes the goalkeeper and it goes in the top left corner. Ah, oh my God. I was in that pub, I've never seen people, men hugging men, women hugging women, you know, women and children, all sorts of screaming, going mental because one man made a difference. And I will always aspire to that. Does it make him a superstar? Yes, it does. But what I have to do is do that every single time I go and step in front of the turntables. Every single time. Kick that goal in the corner of the net past everybody. Because you are only as good as your last event. So does it make me a superstar? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. But I know I have to deliver every single time based on what I know I can do and what I can deliver. Whether it be drum and bass hard techno rave disco music funk you name it it's still happening today of what I've got to do and I'm just humbled by it because I'm just a guy that basically believes and loves and have a passion for life and music and I love to share the love of music now some people will be like well I don't like your music and I go well that's fine you're you, more than welcome to your, your opinion. But then you've got a million people that love my music, and they'll say, oh, you see my daughter over there? Well, while you was playing at Perception, she was conceived, and here she is, and she loves you. you know, and I'm just like, oh, my God, You know, maybe a bit too much information. But anyway, <laughs> my history of what I've done over the years and, and how I've made people feel, and even in the pandemic, you know, I did my vinyl cabin fever shows, which I didn't have to do at all. I could just sat there, watch Netflix, and just got bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, I also decided to go into my collection of music, put my camera on my phone, you know, on Facebook Live, point it at the turntables and start playing music of which got me here, my like history and life of music. I completely went diverse on the other side of my coin of diversity of who I am. And I got so much pleasure by doing that. On one side, the people who have never seen me play a record were like, What's going on with my house and take the music? And on the other side, people that haven't seen me do it for years. Were going, this is fantastic. I didn't know Carl knew about EPMD or Schooly D or anything to do with Sam and Dave or Idris Mohammed. My story is my story. I have it all. It's all up here and I physically have it and I'm going to perform all of these shows. But 52 shows, a whole year of this ideal of, of sharing the love of music from a vinyl perspective was incredible. And a lot of people really took solace in those shows because I was just basically making time of what i love to do and basically performing that uh, a live performance you know based on what we're able to do these days and reached out to people all over the world because of it it's just something that i just do i i just
0: do it and the new album uh, has been born electronic generations like you said more than 10 years since you last put out an album you've said why you've done it how did you do it the mad
1: thing was I wasn't going to make another album. It was kind of like I've done four self-professed albums, all made by me. No ghost producers, no fancy producers coming in going, oh, yeah, I can make a sound for you. I did everything, right from pushing the bass line on a sequencer until the actual track is born. And I've always made music from a traditional point of view. You go in the studio, you've got an engineer, and you've got a plethora of ideas. You put them down, and you've got track one, day one. And then after day three, you finish track one, and go into track two and start again. And that's how I made my music traditionally in that way. So when I did my last album, I felt that there was a kind of a tide of change of how you bought music, how you got behind the artists, the journey of the music. You know, I never see myself as like, well, Cole's just gonna make dance floor music. And that's understood. And then that's too easy to do that because you're one shot at the dance floor. If it doesn't happen, then you're done. So I'm gonna go, here's an album. (laughs) <laughs> at the end of the day. And somewhere in there, there's going to be a point of genius of which you're going to latch yourself onto. And this is what happened on every single album. But I've just found that I was doing way, way too much to get back way too little in a sense of understanding why the album was conceived in the first place. All the times I used to buy music back in the day, I bought it for one track that I liked, but I also wanted to know more about the artist. You know, when I bought the first uh, album from Nile Rodgers, Chic, you know, apart from Dance, 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 Chic, and Le Freak, you should hear the rest of the music on that album. It's just, just mind-blowing, incredible musicianship. And I loved it. So if Nile Rogers and Chic were doing something, i will just buy the album. will not even look at what's being made. These days, it's like, oh, I'm not buying the album on Apple unless I find a record i like to buy first. And then that's it. I don't even want to listen to the rest of the album. So this is the waste of time for me. I've done four albums, move on. So I built my recording studio, and I was going to just put out some dance floor tracks and just do remixes of other people's music. And for me, that was fine. Kicking my hand in what I like to basically make and create. And then we had this little thing called a pandemic, which stopped us all in our tracks. So I'm like, okay, you know what? I never had time for all of my machines, actually. And this is a really good time to get acquainted. So I put them all together, and I started jamming the 303. TR8 and I've got all of this some, some of Moogs, and I'm moving around and pregiating some moves and stuff. And I'm in this, I'm in my own in the room just fucking rocking out, and it's like, fuck, this is brilliant. You know, I thought to myself, oh, what about if I record all of this stuff? Because when you're jamming out and when you're just letting loose and you're just doing whatever crazy shit you want to do, you can't replicate it again unless you record it. So lay it down. And this mixer that Pioneer had made called a V10. On each channel, you can record the stems onto Aprilton Live as a piece of music that you're recording. So kick drums, bass line, claps, vocal pieces, percussion. And I'm just recording all of the things I was doing and creating and making and having fun with for hours. I'm like, go figure. I'm not even sitting and making a track and having a cup of tea going, oh, this is terrible. Just laying it down. So done maybe about three hours worth of music all laid down on my computer. I'm just like, what am I going to do with all of this? So in there, I was sat there one night. This was like after, you know, month number two lockdown. I was in my underpants and that, and I was just there a cup of tea, you know, <laughs> same T-shirt I had on four days ago, beard. And I'm just sitting there, and I'm chopping up all this music. And I'm like, wow, track one, boom, boom, boom. track two, track three, track four, track six, uh, 20 tracks, all ideas, all wonderful things, of which I recorded. I'm like, okay, I'm going to start topping tailing these tracks. So i and and tailing them. And then eventually I had like two albums worth of music, but I wasn't even expected to make. And then once I put it together, I was talking to my manager at the time. I said, Alan, I said, I've made all this music. He goes, send it over and see what happens. He spoke to a few record labels and some of them were like, well, he's a bit old, you know, and blah, blah, blah. I said, yeah, I'll get that. But one guy called Matt King, and he's head a r for BMG. Sending the music over. Within an hour of us sending the music over to him, we got a phone call coming back. He goes, that's the best music I've ever heard you make. And I want to sign you for a free album deal. I'm like, okay, I'm 60 years old. I'm in a pandemic. I didn't want to even make an album. And you're going to do what? Sign me to do a free album deal? Are you sure? Yep. And here's some money up front and blah, blah, blah. Can you deliver the album in the next two months? I'm like... I've already done the album. (laughs) It's going to be delivered. Don't you worry. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can't believe this has happened to me. In the face of adversity, of everything that I thought about the industry as a whole, that I didn't want anything to do with, could I run my own independent record labels, that I've ended up with a major record label at 60 years old and signing to BMG after I was first signed to BMG with Paul O'Connor's record label, Perfecto. Tell me anyone today that has a brand new record deal at 60 years old. Nobody. And this album is the beginning of what I do next because I don't really want to DJ that much anymore. I actually want to go out as a live electronic artist producing live electronic music in front of an audience, of which Wembley Show was all about that and got it across the line. People understood it in the end of the day based on where I want to go now as an artist, you know, as a musician, as someone... That has the ability to still perform dance music, but in this way now. There's million DJs now. Everyone's a DJ. My cat's a DJ. Everyone. They've got a USB stick, a set of headphones, DJ, career. All right. Well, if I helped everyone do that, brilliant. Now it's time for me to move on. Take another step. You know, now do something which excites me even more so now than ever before. And this all became because of a pandemic I had now time to get in the studio I mean a lot of the stuff I was using was in boxes put away never to be seen again I mem- remember doing some of my album on the little sampling machine from Pioneer called a DJS 1000 they sent that box to me about three years before the pandemic and I just put it under the back of the chair I was like what's this box open it up oh DJS 1000 what does he do You yeah. oh, know okay went online few people were doing some things on it. I'm like, oh, okay. The samples in. The majority of my album was made on that box because that was the only thing that I concentrated on for about a month based on my ideas. And I used that box wholeheartedly as the very thing which triggered everything else around my machines. So basically the box unit, when you trigger it, it sends the MIDI signal out to everything else. So you daisy chain everything around it and everything else works in clock and in sequence because of it. And if you look up some of my early shows online, on which I have that set up, and in fact you can hear a lot of that music of the album being made online, as well as laying it down, is how it all came about. And then I sat back to myself, I said, I don't want to DJ anymore. So I want to be able to give people more outside of this pandemic. Once we're done, and we're we're back out, the only thing I want to do is this. And I've been doing my live hybrid shows all over the world, and it's been phenomenal. The idea of it has just been so enlightening that you know, when I go to DJ, which is great, but I've been the DJ for 40 years, so I have to do something else. And this is my next step for me. So I'm hoping that everyone understands the album. I have no apologies if it's not hard enough or it's too hard or it doesn't matter. It's, it's the way how it went down. And the way it went down was with heart and soul and, and energy and power, or based on what I created. I think I created a monster, I don't know. We'll see.
0: How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to
1: come. I've always had this kind of monkey on my back in some ways, where people have said that, you know, he's a great DJ, but he can't make a good album, We can't make good music. We still have this work effort which makes sense to us beyond everything, and I think we feel very honoured and very proud of ourselves to be able to carry on such a legacy for DJs into the future. And I won't stop and quit until I'm going to end up with my uh, crowning glory. That's what I'm searching for. <laughs>
0: Question four coming up. Say when?
1: And When?
0: What do you still want to achieve?
1: I really don't know what I still want to achieve. I think I'm still trying to find that, unless if there is anything more to achieve. Because I've always had this kind of monkey on my back in some ways where people have said that, you know, he's a great DJ, but he can't make a good album. We can't make good music. And here I am with, like, remixes and albums at the Wazoo and I'm still making new music and everything, you know, I've always strived for people to go, okay that's the album or that's the music or that's the track. I think I'm still buying for that, you know, where people go, okay, well, the instruments of of, of DJing is the same instruments of of what I have uh, achieved making my music and I think I'm still trying to work towards that. At the end of the day, my music brings everyone together and I think that I've achieved that many, many, many times, even in war-torn countries or where people are trying to come together at peace with with the music. I'm very passionate about music, and and I won't stop and quit until I'm going to end up with my uh, crowning glory of, you know, Jean-Michel Jarre when he put out Oxygen. That's what I'm searching for. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, final question, Carl, for you from the box. Say where and when. How does being a DJ make you feel?
1: I think being a DJ. And the way how it makes me feel, I feel blessed. I feel I'm in a responsible position where I don't let people down based on non-cancellations of events and that sort of stuff, but based on negligence in some way, so half the time. And I pride myself on that at a 99.5% turn-up rate. If you booked me, I'm I'm there. I think that it's something of which, uh, you know, I, I, I know I personally have turned it into a cottage industry but also for people to understand that this is not an easy thing to do. People think it's really easy to be a DJ and, and just basically twiddle some knobs and jump up and down in the air with a bottle of tequila in one hand and a microphone in another. Uh, I think you do need to have some sort of talent, an ideal, be some sort of person to battle, to be a DJ. I mean, if you look at Fatboy Slim, he's just done, on the weekend, Back to minehead for the weekend. And he created that with him and his team for people to enjoy and have a really great time by. And that takes a certain foresight, certain idea of what being a DJ is all about in the end of the day. And even though it's at Butlins and, and we know it's a holiday resort and everything, the people that went and had a great time by his DJing ideals was incredible. And even though I'm on the, on the other side of the coin to him, we still have this work effort which makes sense to us beyond everything. And I think we feel very honoured and very proud of ourselves to be able to carry on such a legacy for DJs into the future based on what we've done.
0: Carl, you're amazing. It's the end of the world. And you, Carl Cox, have to play the last three records on earth. What would those three records be?
1: I think I've already mentioned one of them, which is Jean-Michel's Oxygen. The other one would be uh, Stevie Wonder, Another Star. I just, I just absolutely love that tune. And you know what? I mean, Michael Jackson, he's done a million amazing records. But there's one track that I really do love from him, and it's it's this track called I Can't Help It. And it's uh, produced by Quincy Jones, and it's probably one of his best works to date. And these are the three records I think you should be listening to if it's the end of the earth. For me, it'll just make my life complete if that's what happened. And that'll be it. Goodbye.
0: Carl, I feel like in some ways we've only touched the sides. Your autobiography is, oh yes, oh yes. And it would be remiss of me not to ask for an oh yes, oh yes.
1: Chris, of course. Well, thank you so much for today, mate. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've had a ball. All I can say to you is, oh yes, oh yes.
0: <laughs> and the latest album by Carl Cox is Electronic Generations. Carl, thank you so much. It's been a privilege. And that was How To DJ. How To DJ to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.